Good morning, everyone. I'm John Schmidt. I'm the senior pastor here at Centerpoint Fellowship Church, and I just uh, want to welcome you to this third installment in our series we've entitled Joy. It's from Paul's letter to the Philippians, and it's a letter that contains 16 references to joy in four chapters. What makes it unusual is Paul was writing this letter from prison to some people uh, who attended a church that he had started 10 years earlier. This morning, there's an installment. The third installment is an outline. It's inside your bulletin. And then uh, this week, we're talking about we have joy in knowing Jesus. If you need a pen to fill in the blanks or just take some notes, please raise your hand. One of the ushers coming up and down the aisle will be glad to pass one down to you. But this is an important concept for us to understand. Throughout this whole series, we've been focusing on the fact that even though we are a very blessed people, coming up to Thanksgiving here this year, we have lots of blessings as a nation. Uh, we will prob- most of us will have more food than we probably should eat on Thanksgiving. Uh, yet even though we're so blessed, we tend to grumble and complain a whole lot. And some of us, even though we're better off than our parents were, or certainly better than our grandparents or great-grandparents, we don't have much joy. And so it's important for us to understand where true joy comes from. Today, at the top of your outline, you'll see that as Paul would define joy in the third chapter of Philippians, uh, it's important for us to realize that joy, as he means it here, means great delight or happiness that comes from knowing that we are made right with God through a personal relationship with Jesus rather than religious performance. One of the great truths of Christianity is this, is that in Christianity, you come to Christ as a sinner. As Christians, we believe that God sent his son, Jesus, into the world to pay the penalty for our sins. Jesus died on the cross in my place, in your place. The penalty for sins is death, but Jesus died to rescue us from that penalty. He never sinned, but he became sin on our behalf. He suffered so we could experience joy. He died so that we can live. He took the penalty. We get the freedom. If that's good news to you this morning, would you say amen? Amen. 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 This is why we worship him and sing praises to Jesus' name. There's a note in your outline, and the word to fill in the blank there is simply this, grace. It's undeserved kindness, and that's what Christians proclaim. If you're a follower of Christ, you say, this, is, this grace is amazing. Jesus didn't have to die on the cross for my sins. I don't deserve it. No, you don't. None of us do. But if we come to him, Jesus said, I died to rescue you. I sacrificed my life for your sake because I love you. You didn't earn it but I want you to have a relationship with me forever. And it's just wonderful. Now you can contrast that with a belief that many people have in the world through all kinds of religious uh, constructs and all kinds of religious systems where they believe that basically uh, our life is measured out on some sort of scale like a giant teeter-totter. And if I do more bad things than good, then I go to hell. If I do more good things than bad, then I go to heaven. The big problem, of course, on this is who's keeping score? And how many points are things worth? I have a neighbor that moves into my neighborhood and I bake him a cake and welcome him. Is that worth 100 points or 1,000? I guess it depends on the neighbor, doesn't it? Or how big the cake was. What happens if I lose my temper and say something I shouldn't have said or I pass on some gossip? Is that a 100-point infraction or a 1,000-point infraction? How do I know? And so you'll have people that go through lives, even people who've attended church, I meet with them all the time in my office, and I say, well, let me ask you a question. Are you right with God if they have a bad diagnosis about a, 
something, a lab test or something? Are you okay if this turns out negative? And they go, I hope so. I hope I've done more bad than good. I hope God grades on a curve. Hey, if you're here this morning and you're not sure which way the scales tip, I want to tell you that's not the game when it comes to Christianity. Christianity says this, that scales already tipped. Before you walked in the door here this morning, I can tell you all of us are sinners. We're negative 5 million in the hole right from the get-go. There's no way you're going to earn God's forgiveness. There's no way you're going to earn his love. You come to him precisely because you're a sinner and you cannot save yourself. And that's a reason for joy. Now, you got to know this. But like I said, you and I will have neighbors and cousins and friends and people who believe exactly the opposite, and some of them live in stark terror. I know. I talk to them, and they go, I can't sleep at night. I'm afraid that if I die, I haven't done enough to earn God's favor. I'm afraid he won't forgive me for last year. I'm afraid he won't forgive me for the things I did when I was a teenager. Listen, there's no joy in that. No joy at all. And God wants us to experience joy, and Paul could write from prison about joy because Paul was preaching a message of grace. We're going to unpack a little more on this whole thought here this morning, but let me pray for us first. Heavenly Father, I thank you for Paul and his letters. I thank you for this letter to the Philippian church. And God, I pray that as we we unpack it together, you'll remind us what grace is all about. Oh God, we are sinners, each and every one, and if it isn't for Jesus, we have no hope. But, Lord, because of Jesus, we got hope that overflows. So please, Lord, I pray that you'll speak and move me out of the way and remind us what great joy we can have because we know Jesus, not because we perform well enough. In the name of Christ, I pray. Amen. Point one on your outline. In this chapter, Paul reminded the Philippians that he placed no confidence, no confidence in his ability to earn his way to heaven. Whatever happens, my dear brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. There's that joy word again. I never get tired of telling you these things, and I do it to safeguard your faith. Watch out for those dogs, those people who do evil, those mutilators who say to you, you must be circumcised to be saved. For we who worship by the Spirit of God are the ones who are truly circumcised. Paul had grown up Jewish, and everywhere that Paul went proclaiming the gospel to a group of Gentiles, the Philippians were people in northern Greece. They would not have been familiar with Jewish traditions or customs or Old Testament law. And one of the hallmarks of being a Jewish family was that every male child was to be circumcised on the eighth day after he was born. This would mark him as one of God's chosen people. And one day when he became the head of the family, as the head of his family as a chosen man, and his whole family then would be marked as God's chosen people. Well, there were people coming in after Paul would go to a Gentile congregation and start a church and they'd come in and say hey Paul told you some good things but Paul left out some stuff now you need to believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins that's true but you got to do more you got to observe Jewish holidays and Jewish dietary laws and you got to be circumcised and then you'll be marked as a, a true follower of Christ as one of God's chosen people and Paul said hey don't don't listen to those dogs and he's not just calling them a name these people were acting like, you know, if you plant a flower bed and your neighbor's dog gets out and he comes digs it all up. It was all pretty, and then he came and made a mess of it. He said, when these people come in and start adding all these requirements to the Christian message, to the good news that you're saved by grace, through faith, 
It's like a dog coming up and digging up the flower bed, stirring up trouble, making a mess out of something that was pretty. He says, in fact, continuing on where we were, we rely on what Christ Jesus has done for us. We put no confidence in human effort, though I could have confidence in my own effort if anyone could. Indeed, if others have reason for confidence in their own efforts, well, I have even more. These people were coming and preaching all this adherence to all these Jewish regulations. The church in Jerusalem, the disciples had all been raised Jewish. The first Christians were all Jewish, and they were observing these Old Testament rituals. And Paul was a missionary to the Gentiles, to people who didn't have all that. He said, well, if anybody could have put confidence in it, I could. I have even more reason. I was circumcised, I was circumcised when I was eight days old. I'm a pure-blooded citizen of Israel. My mom was Jewish. My dad was Jewish. I was a member of the tribe of Benjamin. The first king, Israel's first king, Saul, came from the tribe of Benjamin. So a lot of people thought, hey, well, that's highly significant. A real Hebrew, if there ever was one. I was a member of the Pharisees who demand the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church. And as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. Paul had a Jewish mom, a Jewish dad of the tribe of Benjamin. He had the right pedigree. If you were going to be justified by your birthright, by your inheritance, and then by your performance, Paul had it all because he was part of the Pharisees. These were the strictest observers of the Old Testament law. There was even one group, a subgroup within the Pharisees known as the bleeding Pharisees. And the reason they were known as the bleeding Pharisees is that one of the commandments, the Ten Commandments, is not commit adultery, and they didn't even want to look lustfully after a woman. So every time they saw a beautiful woman, they closed their eyes until they were long, till she was long gone. Well, if you were climbing down a flight of stairs, that was a dangerous proposition, and you became a bleeding Pharisee. If you were crossing the street and you closed your eyes because a beautiful woman, you could get run over by an ox cart. And so they would wear their scars and their broken bones as merit badges. Yeah, this was for that blonde on Fifth and Elm, and this was for that brunette over at the bakery. I'm not making that up. Because then they could justify that they were better at keeping the law than you. See, here's another side effect. Not only do you and I have to be terrified that we might not be keeping the law good enough, but you get into this performance stuff. Well, hey, I may not be doing enough to get to heaven, but I'm better than you. I'm a lot better than you. And the Pharisees were glad to tell you that if anybody's getting into heaven, they are. You sure aren't. Jesus thought it was a wicked thing. And so did Paul. He said, we don't rely on that stuff. I read that to you a little bit ago, and in the middle of that paragraph I just read, the word rely, I'm using a new living translation there. That's not even the best translation for that. It was from the original, the ancient Greek language. The best translation would be brag or boast. We boast on what Christ Jesus has done, not on ourselves. I don't want to show off my merit badges. I want to brag about Jesus. I came into this relationship as a filthy, rotten sinner, and he saved me and made me clean. And I'm going to brag about him. I mean, sometimes when people share their faith with their friends or their coworkers, they go, well, who do you think you are that you're so good you can tell me about how we should live? Well, the Christian response is, who do I think I am? I think I'm a person with a raggedy, sinful soul that Jesus rescued from eternal punishment because he took my sins upon himself, and I'm one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. 
That's who I think I am. I'm somebody telling you the good news so you don't have to live the sorry old life you were living. Come to Jesus and get right today. He'll forgive you no matter who you are, no matter what you've done. And if you think that's good news this morning, then say amen, all of us. Oh, that's good news. And that's why Paul could have joy. Dear friends, I'm writing you. I want you to rejoice in the Lord. Not in us. And don't listen to those dogs that are coming behind, messing everything up, telling you you got to earn this. Yeah, I believe in Jesus, but you also got to have some performance in there. Got to do some other things, too. Now, you got to believe in Jesus, too, but we're going to add this. Mm-mm. There's no add. In fact, Paul, the note in your outline reminds us of this. Nothing, nothing is more important than knowing Jesus, having a personal relationship with him. Not just knowing who he is, but knowing him. If I said Robert Bentley, who is he? Most of us would go, well, that's the governor of the state of Alabama. Do I know who he is? Yeah, I've seen him on television, read about him in the newspaper. Do you know him? No, I've never met him. Do I know who Jesus is? Well, yeah, I mean, I've, I've heard about him. Okay, that's not what I asked. Do you know him? Do you have a personal relationship with him? Paul said, you can ask Jesus into your heart. He'll really come in. You can speak to him anytime you want. He's always listening. He'll guide you through life and help you with the best direction for your life. And Paul says that's what's most important. Here's how he put it. I once thought these things, this is Philippians 3, verses 7 and 8. I once thought these things were valuable, that business of having the right pedigree and the right performance. But now I consider them all worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I've discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage so I could gain Christ and become one with him. I just want to know Jesus. Diplomas don't matter. Merit badges don't matter. Having a relationship with Jesus, that's the most important thing ever. There's a life application for you and me. We're made right with God through faith in Christ. We can never, never earn God's favor or forgiveness. I just have to say it that directly. You cannot earn his forgiveness. And it brings me great joy to read the following passages to you. I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I become righteous through faith in Christ. For God's way of making us right with himself depends on faith. Faith simply means trust. Do I trust in my own ability to do good? Or do I trust that Jesus paid the penalty for my sins and because of that I'm made good? Do I trust that I might be able to work myself out of this? Or or do I trust something that Christ already accomplished and the work is already done? You're putting your trust in something, and what's it going to be? When Paul explained this to the Ephesians, he said, Look, God saved you by his grace, that undeserved kindness, when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it. I love telling people this when they come to my office and they confess their sins and we pray together and I can tell them, in the name of Jesus, I can tell you that you are forgiven. Your sins are washed away. They go, are you sure? I am completely sure. Oh, that's so good. I didn't want to tell you that I struggled with this sin. And I said, well, I knew you were a filthy, rotten sinner when you walked in the door. They go, what? I go, I was too. I mean, like it's shocking news that we're sinners. 
Let's not be shocked at that anymore. Let's acknowledge it. Surrender our lives to Christ and let him change us. Entering into Christ's fullness is not something you figure out or achieve. This is uh, Colossians 2.11 from the message. Entering into Christ's fullness is not something you figure out or achieve. It's not a matter of being circumcised or keeping a long list of laws. It's not through some secretive initiation rite, but rather through what Christ has already gone through for you, destroying the power of sin. And this, this brings us to the exciting part and exciting implication of all this. And that is, the same power that conquered the grave lives in me. See, when I come to Christ... The same power that raised him from the grave after he took our sins upon himself is the same power when Jesus overcame sin. It's the same power that will help me overcome sin. When I ask Jesus into my life, he comes in. He washes away my sin and he changes me. We've got God's word on it. Philippians 3.10. The power to change comes from God. Underline that first sentence. The power to change comes from God. Would you say that with me? The power to change comes from God. Not from me, not from you. This is not a self-help session. The power to change comes from God. You come to Jesus saying, God, I can't do this on my own. Change me, save me. And he really will. The power to change comes from God. Would you turn to a person next to you and say that? The power to change comes from God. Now you heard it from somebody else besides me. You better listen. Paul said it. I've said it. The person next to you said it. It's true. You can't do it on your own. I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. If you flip your outline over, when Paul wrote to the Colossians, he said pretty much the same thing. He reminded them, you were baptized with Christ with, you were buried with Christ, excuse me, when you were baptized. And with him, you were raised to new life because you trusted the mighty power of God who raised Christ from the dead. When we baptize people here in our worship services, like we did a week ago, as we baptize those folks, we place them under the water. And when we raise them up, we're letting everybody see on the outside what's happening on the inside. I've died to my old way of life and my own trying to fix my life. I'm raised to new life in Christ, and he has washed me and made me clean. We have them wear white robes, and the water's running off of them. And it's a powerful demonstration. Jesus is the one who washes away our sins. Jesus is the one who raises us from death to life. The same power that conquered the grave is now inside of me. A few years ago, after I baptized a woman, I remember she stood at the edge of the pool, and she looked back, and I go, did you drop something? I thought she might have dropped an earring or something. She goes, no, I just wanted to see if the water turned black. She did. She said, I have a lot of sin in my life, and I just wanted to make sure it was all gone. I said, it is gone in the name of Jesus. You know what you can take great comfort in? When we drain that pool, all the sin goes down the drain. It's forgiven. It's forgotten. Remember, no more. But that's why you come to Jesus. You don't straighten out your life to come to Jesus. You come to Jesus to get straightened out. You don't get clean to take a bath. You take a bath to get clean. And baptism is a washing of our souls. It's good news. And Paul could write with joy. Hey, don't let anybody come in here and tell you this is some kind of performance game. Don't let them add anything. You come to Jesus precisely because you're a sinner. 
You don't earn anything. If anybody could have earned it, I could have. And I can't, so you can't. Let's just get on with it. And that brings us to point two in your outline. Paul said, now let's press on toward becoming like Jesus. Jesus is God in the flesh. The fullness of God dwelt in him perfectly. He is the perfect model of what it means to live a godly life. You want to know what kindness is like? Look at Jesus. You want to know what forgiveness is like? Look at Jesus. You want to know what servant leadership is like? Look at Jesus and be like him. And Paul says, let's move on toward that. And Philippian people, there are three things you need to remember. First of all, if you and I are going to become like Jesus, we need to focus on who we're becoming, not who we were. We need to focus on who we're becoming, not who we were. Every one of us came into this deal as sinners. Lots of baggage, fears, guilt, shame. Pile it on. We were all there. We don't need to focus on who we were. We need to focus on who God is making us into, who we're becoming. Paul said, I don't mean to say that I've already achieved all these things or that I've already reached perfection, but I press on to possess that perfection for which Christ Jesus first possessed me. No, dear brothers and sisters, I have not achieved it, but I focus on this one thing, forgetting the past and looking forward to what lies ahead. I press on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which God through Christ Jesus is calling us. You know, if you get in a car and you learn to drive, I hope you learn to drive uh, notice, uh, by looking through the windshield rather than the rearview mirror. Windshields are huge. Rearview mirrors are small. The reason why is you need to be looking forward, not always backward. Imagine if you had one big mirror and a little tiny window to look forward. Imagine if we were driving looking back the whole time. Well, we'd run into everything, run right off in the ditch. And yet a lot of us, this is how our weeks get derailed. We wake up on Monday morning, and the first thing we think about is how badly we messed up last week. And how angry everybody must be, and how disappointed God must be with us for when we were a teenager, or last year, or a failed marriage, or name it, and name it, and name it. And we dwell on all the things in the past that we've done wrong, and we can't even see the glorious future that God has spread before us. He's got a wonderful week ahead of us, and we miss it all, because we just keep looking in the past and thinking about how sorry we are. Or we were. And Paul says, you want to live like Jesus? Mm -mm. You come to him as a sinner. Confess it. He'll take your sins away. And now you focus on where, what he's got for you. Don't you dwell on the past. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. A new life has begun. Why are you staring out the rearview mirror? Look out the windshield. You got a new life. Get on with it. Let's press on toward becoming like Jesus. It's funny, in uh, John 9, John records for us a man that Jesus healed, put some mud on his eyes and told him to go wash. The man did, and he'd been blind from birth. He came back seeing. The Pharisees, the strict group of rule followers I told you about, well, they were angry at Jesus because of this, because he did it on a Sabbath day. And the Sabbath day, you weren't supposed to work. And putting mud on somebody's eyes could be some kind of sculpting, maybe. I don't know. And washing the mud off could be some kind of car wash thing. I don't know. But anyway, it wasn't good. Must be violating the rule somehow. And they couldn't figure out how Jesus was able to pull off this miracle while breaking the laws at the same time. And so they brought this man in front of them. And they said, hey, give glory to God. How'd this happen? And they said, well, Jesus, this man named Jesus put mud on my eyes, told me to go wash. I washed, and now I can see. 
They go, well, now look, tell us the truth here. We know this man's a sinner, cause, and that can't be right because he's a sinner. He broke the Sabbath laws. Don't you know that? You'll have his reply here in your outline. The man said, look, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. But one thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. That's where I used to be. This is where I am now because of Jesus. I love it when I meet people who have just become Christians and they invite all kinds of friends to church and they hand out Bibles and they're sharing their testimony. They introduce their friends to me when they're walking in the door. John, I want you to meet a friend of mine. Now, they can't explain the Old Testament or New Testament. A lot of it, they've never even read it yet. If you ask them, hey, do you understand how the Old Testament fits together? They go, no. No, I can't explain that at all. But I can tell you one thing. I used to be a drunk, but now I'm sober because of Jesus and what he's done in me. I used to be depressed all the time, and now I've got joy in my life because Jesus changed me. I was blind, but now I see, and I'm going forward. I'm not going back to being blind ever again. Paul said, I want you to rejoice in that. But if you and I are going to do that, then we need to focus on moving forward who we are now instead of who we were. Quit dwelling on the past and focus on what's ahead. Let's press on. Secondly, we need to, if we want to become like Jesus, we need to learn from godly people. We're not the first generations of Christians to live. We can learn from saints in the past. It's one of the reasons we, want, we even come here together and worship together as a church. It's why we want you to get in small groups. If you're not in a small group, we'll get you in one. We call them connect groups where you can learn together from God's word and we can sharpen each other and encourage each other. Paul reminded the Philippians of this. Dear brothers and sisters, pattern your lives after mine and learn, learn from those who follow our example. For I've told you often before, and I'll say it again with tears in my eyes, there are many whose conduct shows they're really enemies of the cross of Christ. They're headed for destruction. Their God is their appetite. They brag about shameful things. They think only about this life here on earth. We don't just follow just anybody. We follow godly people. Well, how do we know who those are? Well, that's the note here. You and I need to beware of pretenders. We need to beware of pretenders and follow truly godly people. Jesus explains to his disciples once, and Matthew recorded this for us in Matthew 7, how to spot the real deal. Beware of prophets, of false prophets, who come disguised as harmless sheep but are really vicious wolves. You can identify them by their fruit. That is, by the way they act. Underlined by the way they act. Can you pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? A good tree produces good fruit. A bad tree produces bad fruit. Good tree can't produce bad fruit. Bad tree can't produce good. If you and I are walking through a grove of trees at the right time of year, and there are apples hanging off a tree, I'm going to tell you that's an apple tree. Well, John, did you study agronomy at Auburn? No, it's an apple tree because it has apples on it. If we're walking down the beach and there's coconuts on the top of a tree, is that a pear tree? No, it's a coconut tree. How do you know? It's got coconuts on it. If I look at somebody's life, hey, has this person been changed by Jesus? Well, let's see. Five, ten years ago, they were angry and mean and miserly, and they could cuss the wallpaper off a wall. Now, since they've come to know Christ, I look at their life and I see love and joy and peace and patience, and gentleness, and kindness. I see mercy. I see self-control. There's fruit in their lives. I can learn from that person. I mean, Jesus said, that. look, this is clear. Now, fruit doesn't grow in a day, but over time, 
It does. It'll show up. And if you and I are following Christ, the fruit becomes evident. Because His Spirit is living in us and convincing us of things we need to let go of and other things we need to embrace. Again, not to earn heaven, but because now He is inside of us, changing us so we can become the person He always wanted us to be. So if I'm going to become like Jesus, I need to focus on what lies ahead instead of what's behind. I need to learn from other godly people. I need to take a look at my friends. What kind of fruit is hanging from their lives? Who am I hanging around? And finally, if I want to be like Jesus, you and I need to live like citizens of heaven. Citizens of heaven. Paul could write with joy even though he's in prison and might die because our time here on earth is short. In fact, if we live 100 years on earth, it's like a dot on a line that's 10,000 miles long when you compare it to eternity. We're doing all this to be right with God through Christ. We can live forever in heaven. And that changes our perspective on suffering. That changes our perspective on material possessions. It changes our perspective on fame and significance and meaning, what things are truly meaningful in life. And Paul says, I want you to understand this. He said, we are citizens of heaven where the Lord Jesus Christ lives. And we are eagerly waiting for him to return as our Savior. He will take our weak mortal bodies and change them into glorious bodies like his own using the same power, here we go again, with which he'll bring everything under his control. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stay true to the Lord. I love you. I long to see you, dear friends, for you are my joy and the crown I receive for my work. Peter wrote something similar to the early church. Dear friends, I warn you as temporary residents and foreigners to keep away from worldly desires that wage war against your very souls. When Jesus taught his disciples to pray a simple prayer, he said, say a prayer like this. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, I want your will done in my life like it is in heaven. At my office, I want your will done like it is in heaven. Wherever I go, Lord, I want to focus on what lies ahead. I want to depend on your power to change me. I want to become like Jesus. And in my home and in my office and in my neighborhood, I want to have a little embassy for heaven, a little outpost where if people are living in darkness, there's a little bit of light at my desk. There's a little bit of light in my phone call. There's a little bit of light in my emails. Thy will be done on earth in my life as it is in heaven. You're a citizen of heaven. Don't get your joy and happiness from the things of this earth. You're a citizen of heaven. And you got there because of what Jesus did for you. You didn't earn it. It's a free gift. So rejoice. And tell others so they can go too. Now, as we planned this service, uh, we decided as a worship team that the best way we could possibly reinforce uh, Paul's teaching here to the Philippian church was to reinforce it the way Jesus did with his disciples. On the night before he was crucified, Jesus had a special meal. 
And during the meal, he took a loaf of bread and he broke it. He passed it around among the disciples. And he said, take, eat of this. And they did. And while they're eating, he said, this is my body. It's broken for you. The next day, he was going to die on the cross. The wages of sin is death. Jesus said, I'm going to die so you can live. I'm going to suffer so you can have joy. I'm going to give you freedom. Remember me. As often as you do this, remember me. And after the supper was over, Jesus took a cup of wine. He passed it among the disciples. He said, I want you to drink of this. And so they passed it around, and they did. This is my blood. Washes away the sins of the world. My blood will cleanse you. I died so you can live forevermore. Rejoice in me. Remember me as often as you do this. And so this morning, we have set up tables at the front of the room, back corners of the room, trays on each table, small cups of juice, and small pieces of bread. And this morning, as our, I'm going to ask our worship team to come back up here. Our worship team will lead us in just a minute in a wonderful song. And as they're doing this, we'd invite you to go to one of the tables, pick up the bread, pick up the cup, and then return to your seat and just hold it for a few minutes after everyone's been served. We'll take the meal together. But before we go to the tables, I want to warn us about a couple of things that are clear from this chapter. The first is this. When you come to the tables, everybody is to pick up a small piece of bread and a small cup. We don't want you to take five or ten or bring a big gulp. I drank more than you. I ate more than you. I'm more spiritual than you are. Yeah, you're taking communion at 11 o'clock. I went to the 8 o'clock and 9.15 service. I'm three times more spiritual than you are. Imagine if somebody said something that foolish. Well, go ahead and imagine it. We do stuff like that all the time. I use the right translation of the Bible. I wear the right clothing to church. I sing the right type of songs. I'm a real Christian. What? The foot at the base, I mean, the ground at the base of the cross, the foot of the cross is level. We must not add anything to it. And so if you come, whether you've taken communion three times this week already or not, you come as a sinner saved by God's grace. That's all there is to it. And we ask you to come with that attitude. We also ask you to come if you're going to be a part of this meal and you eat of the bread and you drink of the cup. It should remind us that physical food brings physical power and physical energy. That's why we eat. Give us strength for the day. Jesus passed around the bread and passed around the cup because this is food for our souls. The power to change comes from him. And if you come to this table, you're not coming to this table to say, God, not only do I want just to be forgiven of your sins, you're saying, God, I thank you that you forgave me of my sins. Now give me the power to live life as you always intended. Change me. Don't come to this table if you don't want God to change you. Don't you come 
unless you want God to complete the work that he started in you. When you come to him, you surrender all. Every bad attitude, every filthy habit, and say, God, I surrender this, and I want love, and I want joy, and I want peace to overflow from my life. And God, give me the strength I need. I'm your man. I'm your woman. I want to be your person this week. If that's the attitude that you come, not to be better than anybody else, but to come as a sinner saved by God's grace and somebody who's confident and trusting in eternal life through Jesus and the power to change in his name, well, then you come. I'm going to have a word of prayer for us as the worship team leads us. You can proceed to one of the tables. They're all the same, so go wherever you feel comfortable going, in the back corners or in the front. After everyone's been served, just hold on to it. After everyone's been served, I'll have a word for us and we'll eat the meal together. Lord, I just thank you for Paul, and I thank you that he had strong warnings to the people of Philippi not to judge others. Lord, I'm grateful we can gather in this ballroom at this conference center for worship this morning. Ballroom Christians aren't better than any other Christians. Lord, I thank you that you died on the cross for our sins. And we have no right to judge anyone else. I pray, O oh God, that we will come to you and surrender every part of our lives and that you will fill us with your life-changing power. Forgive us for our sins. They are many. And help us to trust you more each and every day. If these things are a desire of your heart, would you pray them silently where you are and say, God, I love you and I need you. I cannot do this without you. We pray these things in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen.